Thank you for joining us as we bring you this worship service of 7th Avenue Presbyterian Church. Our reading is from the book of Job, chapter 38, verses 1 through 11. The Reverend Dr. Robin Crawford is preaching. His sermon is titled, Some Friend You Are, God. You'll find the link to our complete announcements in your email. Here are two highlights. First, looking ahead to returning to in-person worship. We anticipate our first in-person Sunday worship service being August 29th. Over the coming months, our IT team will be working to equip the sanctuary for hybrid, that is, in-person and virtual service options. This will allow us to continue to include those unable or not yet comfortable with attending in-person and to help us ease our way back to in-person worship. Throughout the summer, we will be having more in-person small group gatherings, both indoors and outdoors. Children and families are starting to gather in the park again. We have started experimenting with small fellowship and prayer gatherings. The 2030 group is setting up hangouts and a new walking group has been formed. Keep your eyes out for more opportunities to come. And if you have ideas for gatherings you'd like to create, let us know. Registration is now open for the next Companions on the Innerway virtual retreat, which will be August 11th to the 14th. The Reverend Sharon H. Edwards and Carolyn Foster are co-presenting on the Wisdom of Incarnation, Embodied Practices for a Liminal Time. Details are in the written announcements. And now in preparation for worship, you're invited to quiet yourself, becoming still as you prepare to worship God.
Let us pray. God of earth and heaven, God of light and darkness, we praise you for this good creation and the gift of our lives. When we forget these as gifts, forgive us. When we are presumptuous, asking to sit on your right or your left, move us to humility. When we miss your questions of ultimate meaning, quiet our hearts so we might hear your voice in new and transforming ways. And now, in silence, we continue in prayer to you. God meets us wherever we are, loving us to wholeness. God accepts our doubts and cherishes our questions. God loves us with an embrace that is all-inclusive. God welcomes us with open arms. Thanks be to God. Alleluia. Amen. from the book of Job. 
chapter 38, beginning with the first verse. In preparation to hear these words, let us pray. God, we give you thanks for these ancient words. Open our hearts and minds that we might hear your word for us this day. Amen. Then God answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out of the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed bounds for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stopped. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God.
Good morning, 7th Avenue. I'm Robin Crawford, a retired Presbyterian minister now living in Olympia, Washington, and I appreciate Jenna thinking of me and giving me uh, this invitation to speak with you. Today, uh, the lectionary, that series of scripture readings that lead us through the Bible in an orderly way, serves us up uh, the verses from the Old Testament book of Job, Job 38, verses 1 through 11. And after reading them and stepping back and thinking about Job generally, the thought that came to my mind was, some friend you are, God. Um, but to get to that understanding, uh, we have to kind of back up and look at the whole book of Job. As you know, the Bible is a, liter a, a library. It's all kinds of books put together in a single cover. There are histories, there are psalms, there are letters, there are poems, some of them pretty racy. You need to watch your kids before they start to read the Song of Songs. There are Gospels, and there are two works of satire in that, lab, in that library. One is the book of Job, and one is the book of Jonah, both Old Testament books. These two are probably the most misunderstood books in the Scriptures. Uh, and the primary mistake, of course, is taking them literally, that they're actually about a seafaring guy who gets swallowed by a fish as a literal bit of history. Uh, the other is about uh, Job, a wealthy man uh, who loses everything and gains it back. Um, if we take it as a literal story, uh, we miss the biting satire and commentary on some common problems. So, uh, Job tackles two problems, um, the judgmental piety of those who feel they understand God better than Job does, uh, always an irritation for anyone, uh, but a particularly troubling thing for Job, who has already lost so much, hopes for a little understanding and empathy, and all he gets is uh, judgment from his friends. So one of the things that people turn to Job for is a uh, a kind of um, cautionary tale about who you make uh, your best friends of. But that's not really the most profound idea here. The other is the idea of God whose power and omnipotence overwhelms God's compassion. It's a critique about God, of course, but uh, actually and always uh, any critique of God is a critique about the way we think about God. So uh, this is a challenge to the piety and theological understandings of Job's time. It is set up in the first chapter. Uh, we have to read the book closely, uh, not because it's inerrant, but because it tells us how to understand what's going on. So chapter one is the setup. Satan and God are having a conversation in the quiet of the afternoon. And uh, Satan, in his jealousy, tempts God. Satan says to God, No one loves you for yourself. They only love you because you buy them off with good things. God takes the challenge um, and um, uh, kind of gives in to this temptation um, uh, in a kind of pride with Satan. God chooses uh, someone who loves him very much, Job, as the test case, they're going to strip Job of all his blessings and see if he still believes in and respects God. So God kills all of his kids, takes all of his possessions, 
causes him to have painful, superating sores all over his old body. Uh, he leaves him only his wife, um, whose advice to Job after a chapter of this is to curse God and die. So we don't really know whether leaving him his wife was a blessing or not, but uh, that was the one thing that God left to Job from his former life. What follows then are tedious chapters of friends who come over, offer lousy advice, offer judgment of Job, uh, don't understand how it can possibly be that his misfortune is God's doing, and so continually say, you deserve what you get, somehow you're responsible for it, and you should be praying for forgiveness of your sins rather than justice in God's sight. We get 37 chapters of that poor advice and um, unfriendly friendship. Job doesn't give in. He may curse his life, but not God. He may regret all that has happened, but he maintains his integrity. He trusts God and wants an explanation. All he's asking for is a little justice. Job continues to hold his position as an innocent man, which of course we know is true. Finally, at chapter 38, God steps in. Maybe he's as tired of the tedious friendships as Job and we are. He overlooks the deal he's made with Satan. He has uh, not one scintilla of um, self-doubt about what's going on. God steps in to defend himself. And here is what God says. Chapter 38, verses 1 through 11. The Lord answers Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all of the heavens shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. And prescribed bounds for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stopped. God goes on like this for two more chapters, identifying his glory, his power, his creative uh, goodness. And after two chapters uh, of this poetic uh, kind of overkill, Job steps in, interrupts briefly to say, See, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once. I will not answer twice but will proceed no further. Uh, but God is not satisfied with those humble words. And so he goes on for another two chapters, explaining and giving examples of God's power, God's wisdom, God's omnipotence. Finally, Job gets another opportunity to reply. And the writer, editor of my Bible, says uh, this passage is labeled, Job is humbled and satisfied.
Then Job answered the Lord, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here and I will speak. I will question you and you declare to me. I had heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And there ends the book of Job, according to the earliest of authors. Job, apparently in the author's view, is humbled and satisfied and despises himself and repents of his call for justice in dust and ashes. Well, of course, we know from the setup of the book that his calls themselves were just, and it's hard to see how Job is satisfied. And apparently, subsequent readers of the book of Job felt the same way uh, because they added to the book of Job. Um, one uh, pious reader, finding that answer so unsatisfied, unsatisfactory, uh, added first uh, this addition, that God turns on those clueless friends for not speaking of God properly, although we are not clear what they should have said. And they are told they must offer burnt offerings in humility for the way they treated Job and asked Job to pray for them to ease God's displeasure with their advice. Which apparently Job does, because there's a second ending added, perhaps even later than the first, and that says, after Job prays for his friends, Job gives God another set of children, just as good as the first, gives his, and his family come to visit, they comfort him, they give him money and gold rings, and he ends up with more children and twice of the, the fortune he had before, and that is the story of Job as we currently read it. So let's take a moment to say a prayer. Gracious Lord, we thank for you for Scripture and for its unfolding, for the opportunity to share it. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, forgive that long introduction, but we can't approach this lectionary reading, this passage of Job, without that background. The authors of Job were wrestling with their human situation. The, the nation had been defeated. The population had been scattered. The God of Abraham and Isaac and King David seems to have turned God's back on those people. And if God was powerful, God was also wrathful in blaming their misfortune upon them. But the book of Job is a satire of that God. And of course, we're speaking not of God and God's own identity, but how people understand God. And this is a criticism of people who, who blamed themselves, blamed those who had been defeated, those who had been disappointed, those who were in dismay for their own situation. Uh, it is a criticism of that, because as you read it, you can't help but feel the injustice that has befallen Job. And although later's, later authors were so upset that they added to the story, seeming to add a measure of justice, 
in a way that actually made the satire even more compelling. What this story paints is a picture of what happens when we believe in a God who is long on power, but short on compassion. And of course, we're not speaking of God as the deity exists in themselves, but we're thinking about the God uh, that comes to us that we sometimes imagine in our hearts. I'll give you an example of that from my time as a chaplain, see, as a chaplain. Uh, I was called uh, to the intensive care ward. A young man had been in an auto accident. His life was nearing an end, and his mother was there. She had a friend with her, and the friend followed uh, the pages from the book of Job, as the friends there did, and tried to comfort her by appealing to the nature of God. And as I came into the room, the friend was saying, find courage. Your God needs your son more than you do. And your son will be in God's hands. So take comfort in the love that God has for your son. Well, that seemed a cold comfort to me. And it led me over a course of reflection to come up with my rule of thumb. God should be at least as kind and loving, kind and patient, as compassionate as a loving parent. Well, any loving parent knows that that's um, an imperfect test. We all get overwhelmed, we all get frightened, uh, we all get angry and uh, blame our kids uh, when they are not at fault. In fact, it's our judgment that's at fault. But it gave me an opportunity to have a standard by which I could evaluate my relationship with God. And those times when I felt that uh, life, if not God, uh, was difficult and challenging and unfair, or even worse, on those occasions when I judged myself with a terrible hypersensity that I usually reserve for other people, and feeling like I had been a failure, uh, or at least in that situation, through error or oversight, I had disappointed others and myself, and I just couldn't release myself from the sense uh, that I was being judged, I come back to that test. Do I believe, Do I have I invited into my life a God that is at least as kind and compassionate as a loving parent? Well, it seems odd to do that, but I think part of what the author of Job here is doing is challenging us all to look at our idea of God, to see if our idea of God, even if divine, holy, powerful, creative, serves the purpose of our own humanity, sees us for who we are imperfect and incomplete, inevitably given to errors and mistakes, feeling terrible about them when they happen, um, uh, on our own uh, cognizance, uh, without the need for further judgment. What we need is to be held, forgiven, accepted, loved, and healed. The invitation is to choose your own idea 
of a God who does that for you. Now, don't get me wrong. Presbyterianism is a perfectly serviceable faith, and I'm not talking about, um, you know, wandering out after other religions, although some people do. In fact, I'm not talking about traditional religion at all. Those things that we are told about, told about uh, in terms of God. I am talking, though, about the religion of experience, our own direct and immediate experience of that God whom we have been told, especially in the New Testament, that is a loving God. In fact, Carl Jung, in his answer to Job, says, the event of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ coming into the world, is a direct result of Job's experience. Job's challenge to God is so poignant, so honest, so unavoidable and true that God needed to affirm how great God's love was. And so taking the form of a human being, experiencing, perhaps suffering, what it means to be a member of humanity, this flawed and incomplete group of people struggling to find communion and community with one another. God stepped into our lives in a unique and personal and loving way to say, I am a God of compassion. You could trust that because I've experienced what it means to be a human being among other human beings. It's a powerful way of thinking about Jesus as an answer to Job's plea for justice, for compassion, and for love. And it's one that challenges us to accept that invitation, to experience God's love from such a personal and profoundly intimate point of view. Well, how do we go about choosing a concept of God that is loving, that is helpful, that has meaning in our own personal experience? And I found that in the 12 steps uh, of Alcoholics Anonymous and other programs that help people overcome events that have led to their very great humiliation and chagrin. The step says that I'm thinking of, it's step two of those 12 steps, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. And what I've done on occasions with people is uh, to help them uh, understand that personal, that intimate, that loving nature of God by looking at the steps and not starting with the idea of God, but starting with the idea of sanity. When have you been sane? How has that felt to you? What are the situations under which it occurs? I did that with hundreds, perhaps thousands of people when I was a hospital chaplain working uh, with a drug and alcohol program. And it was exciting to see how people, <clears throat> just 30 days into their recovery of that disastrous illness, could find within their own experience the seeds of healing that would begin to restore them to mental health and sanity, that would usher in their season of sobriety. So, 
as a chaplain, I'd set up an appointment with them. I'd say, you know, let's just set aside everything that we've been told about God. What we're going to start off with is talking about sanity. When you have been saying what that means to you and what that might tell you about the power that restores you to that sanity. I remember vividly uh, having that happen with one woman. Uh, she was already anxious. She said, I know I had to meet with the chaplain. I'm making the appointment with you now. Uh, but, but please, uh, don't expect too much. Uh, uh, I'm having trouble, and I'm pretty sensitive right now. I don't know much about God. I said, well, our conversation won't really be about God so much as, as about sanity. What I'm going to ask you is, when have you been sane? She said, oh my God, that's even worse. I'd have trouble enough talking about God, but I, I don't think I've ever been sane. I'm going to flunk this. Well, I assured her that no one flunked the second step, that we would always come up with something helpful to think about in terms of sanity. We set a time, and several days later, she and I sat down, and I asked her what she thought sanity meant to her. She said, you know, Robin, I've given that a lot of thought. I know that I'm not going to come up with anything, but I just, I just can't remember when I'm saying. I don't think I've ever been saying. So I invited her to think about sanity as something that isn't a steady state. We're not sane for years at a time or even months or weeks, but sometimes uh, we're just saner for briefer periods of time. And, and I, I wondered maybe if she hadn't sometime... Uh, spent an occasion outside her house. I'd already heard that her parents had been drinkers too, and there was a lot of chaos there. She said, no, um, you know, I started drinking when I was eight, and uh, in my house, I don't think I ever had an opportunity to be sane. I said, well, you know, perhaps sanity was something that you just experienced briefly. Maybe perhaps you spent um, a summer or um, a brief vacation with your grandmother, for instance. And you got away from that chaos and experienced a bit of peace of mind, some sanity. No, she said, my, my grandmother was a drinker too. That wasn't much of a solution. I said, well, perhaps for you, sanity never occurred at a period like a week or uh, even in several days. But, but maybe you'll think of a time, maybe just a, a day or so, when you, when you got away. Uh, maybe you had a picnic. Maybe you walked on the beach and you just caught a sense of things greater than you were. The beauty of nature, for instance. You could relax, take a breath, and feel some peace of mind. She said, I, I never remember anything like that. My weekends were spent drinking. I said, well, perhaps perhaps this sanity came to you uh, only... Uh, in a few moments, you had an occasion to look at the clouds in the sky, or maybe you watched the sunrise or the sunset over the ocean, and you were filled with just a moment with the, the beauty of the planet around you and the goodness, and uh, that was Claire. She said, no, I don't ever uh, recall remembering paying any particular attention uh, to anything like that. Really, I tell you, I, I mostly just uh, worked and drank. I said, well, uh, for some people, I was starting to run out of units of time. For some people, perhaps, uh, that sanity happens in the briefest of moments. It's, it's just an impression. It's there for a moment, and then it's gone. 
She was a good sport. She had stayed with me through all of this. I could see her thinking. And then I could see a memory came to her. She said, tell me this. Tell me this. Maybe this is sanity. She said, I was, I, I was at my second wedding. And I was standing there with the minister and I saw my parents and I saw all the guests and I, I saw the guy I was going to marry coming down the aisle toward me. And for a moment I thought, oh my God, this is a mistake. What do you think? Was that a moment of sanity? I said, well, what happened? She said, oh my gosh, it was a nightmare. It took me three years to divorce the guy. If I'd only listened to that moment, I was so sure that was a mistake. But, you know, the guests were there, the arrangements were made, we had the reception, the caterer, everything. I just couldn't bring myself to pay attention. I said that moment, that moment. How did it feel? What was it like? Take a moment just to listen clearly. She said, yeah, I was so certain. I said, well, have you had other moments of certainty like that? Again, she was still a good sport. She thought for it. A moment, and she said, well, yeah, actually, when I graduated from high school, I, I was certain, I was certain that I could go to college. I was certain I could, I could go to college. But other things came up, and a job came up, and I took the job in one thing or another, and I just, I just never got around to it. That moment of certainty, I said, were there other moments? And we began to trace a history of those briefest of moments when she just clearly knew what was important for her life and yet was distracted in one way or another, sometimes by drinking, sometimes by relationships, by children. But after she described three or four, she said, hey, wait a minute. I know what you're doing, Robin. I said, well, what am I doing? She said, that's my higher power, isn't it? I said, well, what do you think? And she began to cry. She said, oh, God was there all along. I just didn't listen. I never thought that I knew what sanity was, but, but there it was. It just came in, in these brief moments, and, and I never paid attention. I said, well, what would your life be like if you began to pay attention? And she got excited uh, because those moments were so vivid and so clear to her, so trustworthy, so generous in their possibilities. And she went on to tell me what that meant for her about God. And she shared some pretty painful moments. And she said, so that's it. God was there with me. God was feeling what was happening. God probably maybe even felt it more clearly than I did. I see now I have never been alone. That God has been a part of my life at every moment. And, and if I'd only listen. And we talked about what it might be to listen like now. She chose her own concept of God one that was practical, one that was helpful, compassionate, one that was strong enough to carry her through hard times. And I think, I think when we read the whole book of Job, that's precisely what Job is inviting us to do. Set aside the images of God that tradition has carried to us. 
set aside the good advice of those around us. Listen for a moment to our own experience, to those quiet, sometimes passing moments when there is a certainty about who we are and what's important, a certainty about the inspirations and presence of God that comes to us when we pay attention. That's the gift of Job. That's where justice is found. That's where justice not only for God, for God's loving power can be found, but justice sometimes when we're inclined to judge ourselves. We can listen beyond the guilt, beyond the shame, beyond the confusion, the loneliness, the hurt, the misunderstandings, the blaming sometimes of others, sometimes of ourselves. And here in those quiet, quiet moments, that power greater than ourselves that restores us again and again to sanity, to grace and peace of mind. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we have wondered about you and about your nature from the very first. We read the book of Job and we enter the author's minds and hearts, their fears and confusions, their hopes and dreams, their longing for a God that touches them from within with gifts of grace and love, compassion and forgiveness. And we pray the same through the power of Jesus' witness and love, the voice of God that comes to us still and small and reliable. We thank you for those gifts. We thank you in Jesus' name. And in Jesus' name we say, Amen. We believe in God, who calls us to do great things, confident that we will succeed. We believe in Christ, who assures us of our abilities and models a life of possibilities. We believe in the Spirit, who enables us to be only but fully human by teaching us trust. This we believe. Amen.
Let us pray. Holy God, source of compassion, we give you thanks for the beauty that surrounds us and for the ways it invites healing. We pray that our vision would continue to expand, that the images we carry of you and of one another would do justice to our humanity as members of creation. Help us to balance our critical eye with the truth of love. When we are in need of forgiveness and reprieve from judgment, remind us of your loving kindness and of the wisdom we carry. We pray your justice, your love, your compassion be with all who ache this day. And we pray for ears to listen to the cries of one another, that we might be moved to respond. We know it is not always safe to maintain a declaration of innocence when faced by an unjust authority bent on a person's guilt. We feel the injustice of that, and we pray for change. We pray for the safety of our BIPOC siblings. We pray for the moral integrity of our systems, for the ways we organize life together. You are with us in our dancing and in our mourning, and so we pray your presence might be felt by the whole Seventh Avenue community, and especially by those of us who are grieving the loss of someone we love. We give thanks for the beauty each father each mother, each friend brought to the earth. And we pray you would welcome them into your peace. Be in the stirrings of each of our hearts as we continue now in silent prayer. We make these prayers in the spirit of the one who taught us to pray, saying, Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let 
to reflect on the images of God you carry. Do they serve the purpose of your own humanity? As you go forth, may your memories of clarity, of peace, of healing be your guide. grace of God who created you in love, the peace of Christ who teaches it is possible to be love, 
and the power of the Spirit who calls you ever forward into new experiences of love be and abide with you this day, this week, and evermore. Amen.